0: Well let, let, let me start with prayer. I am um, I'm, I'm so aware often, but I, I really feel it today, the sense that um, that God's power must work over His word, uh, must work over His word preached for the effect that any of us want to have from preaching and hearing. So I'm going to pray. Would you guys pray with me that God would work his power through the Holy Spirit into our hearts? Lord, we have no name to call upon you through but Jesus. We cannot call you through any other name. We cannot call upon you. Through our own name, we cannot call upon you through others' names. We can only call you upon you through the name of Jesus. But Lord, that name you've given us, it is the name high above every rule and authority. It is the name you have given us so that we can call upon you and know we are heard. And so in the name of Jesus... He is the perfect key that unlocks the door to your grace. And in his name, Lord, we pray, work powerfully through your Holy Spirit to exalt your Son in our hearts, to glorify your Son in our hearts, that we might praise you for Jesus, that we might exalt in you through jesus that we might rejoice and have joy about you because of jesus that we might taste deeper and deeper experiences of freedom of spiritual freedom through jesus that we might answer the the reason for his coming when he said i came that you might have life and have it abundantly In the name of Jesus, please pour out and work through the Holy Spirit this abundant life, this new life through the Holy Spirit that we need, taste, and experience so much. We ask this in your holy name, in the name of Jesus, that he might be exalted and we might find joy in his name. Amen. So this morning... um, We're approaching communion, and I'd like to stay on the track that we've been on, kind of from Good Friday through Easter, through the resurrection and the ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, And I'd like to pick up kind of where we were last week with the final point of last week's message on the Holy Spirit and his work, which was we experience the Holy Spirit as we embrace Jesus in his gospel um, and that's that's the title I'm giving this message. That we experience the Holy Spirit as we embrace our Savior. We experience the Holy Spirit as we embrace our Savior. And I don't have like three headings this morning. I'm going to go straight through a section of Scripture, um, jumping a, a couple of verses here and there. And the passages the passage that we left off on last week. I think it was one of the last ones, second to last passage, which was Galatians three. So, if you have Galatians, well, it would be Galatians 2 and 3. If you have the book of Galatians, um, (coughs) could you turn to chapter 2? And it would be really great if you do. um, If you do. Oh, we just had Christiana join us. Hi, Christiana. So glad you're here. Um, If you do have your Bible, it would be really good if you could get it. Um, so I should have said that before the break, but if you need a second to go grab your Bible, we're going to look at Galatians chapters two, halfway through, and we're going to look at the first part of three. So Galatians two, chapter three, I've got the verses right here. So I'll try to make sure that I note where we are in them, but it would help if you did have the actual verses with you. So again, we're picking up with kind of where we were last week, which, which was our final point in that message, which was, we experience the Holy spirit as we embrace our Savior, And we specifically talked about embracing him in the gospel of his good news. And that's really going to be the point of the spear this morning. There's a way that we need to embrace Jesus. Uh, not he's a good guy or, you know, he's a really great teacher or even like, hey, he's or even simply he's the Messiah. But there's there's a fullness to the message of Jesus that we need to embrace. If we want to embrace, if we want to experience the Holy Spirit, the way God intends us to experience him. And that's spelled out so clearly in the book of Galatians. This book, Galatians, is a beautiful, beautiful letter. It is a letter of great freedom and hope and peace and great grace. The the great reformer, the 16th century reformer Martin Luther called Galatians his, he named it his Katie von Bora. He actually called the letter of Galatians his Katie. He gave it a name, Katie, and he gave it this name because that was his wife's name. His wife's name was Katie von Bora. And, and Luther felt so close to this book. He felt so cared for by it, so, so helped by it, so embraced by it. And he was so enamored with it that he gave it the name of his wife. He said, Galatians is my Katie. Um, but Galatians is also a really bold letter. Like it's a letter of tough love. There are words and attitudes that come out of Paul that are designed to grab us by the the scuff of our collar and and shake vital sense into us. Paul does something in this letter that that I don't really see him doing in in any other letter quite the way he does it here. Um, And uh, Hannah just joined us. Hi, Hannah. Um, (laughs) For instance, Paul in the book of Galatians he never thanks God for the Galatians. He's always thanking God for the people he's writing to, but he doesn't do that. Um, and he doesn't kind of say hello to this person, say hello to this person in the beginning. You know, sometimes in these letters, you'll see these nice greetings that Paul gives, and he, he doesn't do that stuff. From the very beginning, Paul's... in in. He, he doesn't, in fact, he doesn't even say, I've been praying for you. That's another thing he loves to do in his letters. Tell the churches how much he loves them, uh, how much he's been praying for them, and thanks God for them. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He cuts right to the quick. From the very beginning, after a brief kind of formal, hello, Galatians, I'm Paul the apostle sent by Christ, grace and peace to you. From the beginning, he moves right into, in verse 6, this attitude of shock. He says to them, I am astonished at you. That's in verse 1-6. He is shocked and alarmed and deeply troubled at what they're doing. And he says, I am astonished. Um, And and let me tell you, this is really like kind of grabs me. What they were doing, he found it, it, it it was so shocking to him. But I think if any of us walked into the Galatian church and we walked into that community and we spent a day with them, I, I'm afraid that, that many of us would hardly notice anything was wrong. Like it, it wouldn't necessarily register to us. Um, especially in our current cultural climate, we might even be tempted to say, man, what, what a beautiful faith tradition they have. Look how religious they are. Look how polite they are. Um, look at the beautiful, you know, tapestries they have a- around their rituals. And, and Paul is saying, I am shocked at you (laughs) we would not I don't think many of us wouldn't bat an eye and he's saying I'm shocked in fact he goes on to say that whoever is teaching them the things that they're starting to believe he says that they should be cursed by God that teacher he says should be cursed by God he says in effect "If, if I Paul ever talk you into your current state of mind that I'm hearing about I should be cursed by God he says if I start teaching you what you've been learning and you, you've been starting to believe, if an angel did that, that angel should be cursed by God. I mean, these are the things he says in the first chapter. He accuses them, as we'll see, of being under a spell, of being hypnotized through through like witchcraft. I mean, he's using hyperbole in a sense. He's using um he knows literally that a witch hasn't come in and put a spell on them, but he's saying, this is what it looks like to me. It looks like a witch has come in and put a spell on you. He calls them fools. He says, you, are you so foolish? And he warns them that they are in danger of, of being cursed. And so with everything Luther said about it being so dear to him, he named it after his wife. There's this, there's a starkness to it. Um, and, and, and I, I think that we just need to stop and ask the question, like, what does this say about the way we think about the things Paul will think about, you know? Um, I mean, like I said, I think if, if we'd walked in there, I know for myself, I, I don't think my first cue would have been, these people are witchcraft. You know, they're, 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 they're under a spell. So it begs the question, what had they done that was so horrific to Paul? so bad that he says I'm astonished um, what had they done that was so revolting to Paul that he calls for uh, a, a curse of God on whoever is leading them in their new line of thinking <laughs> right uh, they were doing something um, that was to Paul just about the worst thing that could be done and 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 I think um, that it really, Again, I think it in some ways it betrays just a, a numbness in myself and others to the, the starkness of the gospel and the uniqueness and the precision of the gospel. Because what the Galatians were doing, what they were believing, and what they were being led to believe that was so alarming to Paul was this they were being told that Jesus was the Messiah and he was God's son, and that they needed to have faith in him, but they also needed to add to that faith religious ritual, their own performance, and their own morality if they hoped to be saved. They were being led to believe, in essence, in a very polite, civil way, simply that Jesus alone was not enough For their salvation, Jesus alone was not enough for their right standing with God, that He was not enough to justify them before God. And we'll talk about what that word means. But they were essentially being told that, in a very polite and civil and religious sounding way, that Jesus' blood and the work He had done on the cross were not enough to declare them not guilty, that Jesus was not enough to give them a righteous standing forever before the judge of the universe. They were being told that Jesus was good. He was the Messiah, but they also needed to add their religious performance. They also needed to add their obedience to the laws of God. They also needed to add, in effect, their character and their own righteousness to what Jesus had done if they'd hoped to be saved, if they'd hoped to have a a righteous standing before God. And they were being told this by very smooth-talking religious folks that none of us would be shocked at or appalled by if we met them in the grocery store. Uh, they weren't some weirdo, you know, cult-leading people living out in, um, well, I won't, I won't go down that road. But, but, but that's what they were being told. It was not enough to rely on Christ to reconcile us. It was not enough to rely on Christ to save us. So, so that was what Paul said shocked him. And, and that was what Paul said should curse him if he taught that, to curse him by God. And, and Because and the reason why Paul is so upset by this and so alarmed by this and so troubled by this is that he knows that it's, it's not only our performance. It's not only that our performance, our character, our religious duty, it's not only that that's unnecessary for our salvation, but it, if we do actually move in our faith, from Christ alone for our salvation to Christ plus our performance, Christ plus our religious piety, Christ plus our great character. If we do actually move away from Christ alone and Christ plus, we will actually be abandoning Christ. We will be obligated to be perfect. We will be ourselves walking in the way of, of put, jeopardizing our own walk with God and putting ourselves under his curse, as we'll see, as Paul talks about. In fact, deeper in the letter, Paul warns them that if they rely on their, if they want to rely on their religious rituals, they better prepared, they better be prepared to be perfect in every other way. He says, I declare to every man and woman that if he wants to find his righteousness, and his obedience to God's laws, he better be ready to obey the entire law of God. See, in in Paul's conception of who Jesus is, there is no in-between between between Jesus, hope in Jesus for our salvation, and and hope in us for our salvation. There's no in-between. It's either trusting Christ alone for our salvation, trusting Christ alone for our righteous standing before God, trusting Christ that Christ alone justifies us, cleanses us from our sins forever before God. Or it's it's all up to us. It's It's our righteousness we will stand on or Jesus' righteousness. And Jesus, Paul says, will not be the co-savior with anyone. He will not... He will not be the co-sin bearer with you. He will not bear some of your sins while you bear some of your sins. He will not bring some of the righteousness to the table while you bring some of the righteousness to the table. He won't share his glory as the only perfect atoning sacrifice with, with us. He won't share his glory as the only Lamb of God with you. He must be our Savior and lead us to our eternal life, or we must try to be and perfect and surely be in that Attempt condemn before God for our lack of perfection. There's no in between. And listen, this I, this sounds. I, I believe it sounds harsh to a lot of our ears um, e- as we really think about it. Maybe if we were rooted in kind of these doctrines from an early age, it may sound normal to us. But I think as we move more and more into a, a pluralistic society where tolerance is not only something that means that we we respect. And we 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 try to live at peace with different views, but that if we have our own particular view of Jesus Christ and the exclusive claims he makes, that we're actually being hateful and bigoted. I, I think we can subtly be lulled into this sense that oh no, we can't we can't think of Jesus in these terms. We can't think of him as the as the only Savior. And Paul is saying you have to think of him this way. He's he's not bringing these things to them because he's he hates them or he's trying to like you know just be rough with them for the sake of being rough he's saying these things because he loves them and he knows that nothing is more eternally crucial for them nothing is more eternally crucial for them and spiritually vital to them than a right understanding and embracing of the truth about jesus nothing is more eternally crucial for their eternal destiny or vital for their spiritual joy and health than a right understanding and embrace of the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. So his tone could not be more serious in this letter. It could not be more urgent. And and this morning, we're going to pick up right in the middle of this letter in, in a familiar part to many of us. And it's, again, getting near to where we closed last week. So I'm going to read parts of 2 and 3, and I'm going to stop along the way and and try to give some commentary on them. And then we'll move into communion. So I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. So if you can turn there right now, that's great. If you can't, it's okay. I'll read it to you. Paul says, speaking of himself and his fellow apostles, we ourselves are Jews by birth. Listen, me and all my compatriots, me and all the other gosp- apostles, we're all Jewish. We all received circumcision. And if you don't know what circumcision is, it was a ritual performed on, 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 on babies that were male babies in the, in the Jewish faith. And Paul is saying, we've all gone through this special religious ceremony. And we're not relying on it. We're relying on Jesus alone we've given up relying on our religious duties we've given up relying on ourselves we're relying on Jesus alone and we're jewish and of course he's speaking to gentiles and he's trying to say the gospel came from us jews jesus was jewish we've all gotten circumcised we're not relying on that we're relying on jesus so why are you relying on on jesus plus circumcision so then in verse 16 he says or i'm sorry in in um I want you to look at at verse 16 and see that word justified. We know that a person is justified by works, not, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but they're justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And he keeps repeating it. So we've also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And I want to talk about this word justified because it's one of the most important words in the universe. And, and it means, especially in this context, biblically you can have different nuances, but in this context, it means God's verdict on a person's guilt or innocence before him. To be justified is like law court language. It's like a judge with a gavel saying, Justified or not guilty, or acquitted, or innocent, or righteousness, or righteous. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It doesn't mean necessarily, it's not talking about your past record, it's talking about the moment of verdict, when a judge who has authority pronounces your state before his court. You are justified, you are not guilty, you are righteous. And so what Paul is saying This is what God does when we put our faith in Jesus alone for our justification. And if you can just imagine yourselves before the God of the universe, bringing you into his eternal courtroom. He sees all of your sins. He sees all the ways you have failed to love him, failed to love your neighbor as you should. He sees all the ways that you've been selfish and lazy, and arrogant, and unmerciful. He sees all the ways that, at many times in your life, you've been lustful, and greedy, and unkind, and cold. He sees all the ways over the course of your life that you've been indifferent to people, or impure in your thoughts, or dishonest, or full of gossip, or, or, or where your heart's been filled with hatred, and judgment, uncaused hatred, and a judgmental attitude. He sees it all. And he's a God who's holy and perfect, who cannot reconcile himself with sin and say, sin's fine, but must punish sinners for their sin. And then he sees Jesus. He sees you and all your sin, and then he sees Jesus. And he sees Jesus condemned, And he says, that's for you. And he sees Jesus sentenced to death before Caiaphas and the high priest and Pontius Pilate. And he says, that's for you. And then he sees Jesus punched and beaten. And he says, that's for you. And he sees Jesus' body flogged. And he says, that's for you, world. That's for your sins. And then he sees Jesus' hands slammed with nails and he sees his feet slammed with nails and he says that's for your sins world and then he sees Jesus nailed to wood and raised up and hung on a cross and he says that's for you and then he sees Jesus side speared pushed through punctured with that Roman spear he sees the blood and the water falling out and he says that's for you He sees Jesus poured out and given over to death, and he says, that's for you. And then God sees more. He sees what we couldn't see if we were at the cross. He sees all of your sin, all of that stuff we talked about, all of it, all of it put on Jesus. There's nothing left on you. He puts all of it on Jesus. And then he pours out all of his righteous punishment for you on Jesus in a spiritual sense that we can't understand. He turns his face away from Jesus. Jesus tastes eternal judgment in a a mystery we cannot fathom. And he overcomes it. Jesus says it is finished. He breathes his last. And the father The judge of all the universe looks at you and he says, that was for you. There's nothing left for you. There's no punishment left for you to take. There's no atonement left to be made for you. Jesus has done it all. That's why he said, it is finished. And then in God's courtroom, God looks back at all of your sins and you, and he says, finished. Paid in full. He says, not guilty. He says, You are now righteous before me. You stand as ones who sin. I will never count against you in my court of law. You stand as one who is sinless before me because of my son. Because of my son, you stand before me as one that I see as blameless. You stand, in other words, as righteous before me. You are justified. That's what that word means. You are justified. No guilt on you any longer. Yes, you will still sin, but it's been paid for 2,000 years ago. No sin on you any longer. No condemnation on you any longer. My son was condemned for you. It's all already been finished. And you stand righteous in my courtroom. That's what that word justification means. It took me a long time, you know, uh, 21 years of life before I embraced this truth and it set me free. And I still battle to hold on to it all the time. Like many of you, I, I feel the pangs of my sin. I see it recurring. Things sprout up again. I see how my heart falls short. But I, again and again, I have to come back to Jesus and hear him say, Peace be with you. Look at my wounds. Peace be with you. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, after all of this, he says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. That's verse 19. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. Now, there is so much rich theology here I cannot touch on, but let me just draw out a part of it. Paul says, through the law, I died to it. Through the law, I died to the law. See, Paul came to see that for all his sin, the law could never save him. The law could never save him. The commandments of God, the commandments of God that are wonderful, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, that's the law, the law of love. That's its highest expression. He says, it could never save me. It can tell me what I can do, but it cannot give me the power to do it. And so the law, which was meant to guide Paul or guide all of us into love, it becomes an instrument of condemnation. It can only say you should and you should not. It can never say you can. It can only say you have failed to love again and again as you should have. It can only say, you chose selfishness. And so, in a sense, the law killed Paul. It pronounced a sentence of death upon him. It pronounced the wages of sin, which is death, eternal death on Paul. It rendered Paul guilty and condemned and gave him no way out. And his sin against God could not be denied. He he did deserve eternal death for his sin against a holy God, as we all do. And when the guilty verdict fell on Jesus... Paul's death sentence was carried out. And so Paul says, I died to the law. Through the law, it killed me. I died to it. The sentence was carried out, and it can do no worse to me anymore. In effect, in effect, Paul's death sentence was served on him when it was served on Christ for him. And now Paul sees himself as free from whatever the law can do to him. It's already done it to Jesus. Through the law, I died to it. I died to the law's power over me. Its power to condemn me is over. I died to the law. It killed me. It rendered me condemned. But then, as Christ took my death, it did its thing. And it did this so that I might live to God. He says, so that I might live to God. In other words, I died to the law as a way to try to find life. I have found a new way. And he's going to talk about that. And he says, the new way is trusting Christ is my justification before God. Trusting Christ is my full, sufficient forgiveness and my full, sufficient righteousness before God. And as I've done that, Paul says, I've received God's Holy Spirit to walk by the Spirit and not under these commandments. So that's why he says in the next phrase, he says in verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh The life I now live on earth, I live it by faith in the Son of God. I live it by faith in what Jesus did for me. He says, He qualifies. What's he mean by that? I live by faith in the Son of God, particularly the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. That's who Jesus is to me. He loved me, He gave himself for me. I'm not condemned anymore. Jesus, Paul says, lives so fully in him and so robustly in him and so overwhelmingly in him that it's as if Paul has disappeared, disappeared in the ocean of love and life and new freedom and power he has found in the Holy Spirit of Jesus. He says, "It's man, it's, it's Christ who lives in me. I've, I've disappeared into his love for me. I can, I can preach these words to you, but I know I cannot... Make these things alive in your heart. And and I I, I need the Lord to make them alive in my heart as I read them. I'm going to pray right now. God, I I just want to ask you, please, again, we all just want to ask you, make the truth of who Jesus is for us alive in us again, that we might experience the Spirit in a more profound and fresh and full way so that Jesus might be exalted, so that through the Spirit, Lord, and his work in our heart, we might say, yes, this is true. This is true. Lord, exalt your Son through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. There's an old poem. There's different pieces of it. Uh, John Bunyan was one of the guys attributed to it, but it it was around there in the 1700s, I think. But um, it it goes like this, or pieces of it go like this. And it's a poem about the difference between what the law can do versus what God's grace can do. And it says this, run, John, run, the law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands run john run the law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands far better news the gospel brings it bids us fly and gives us wings a rigid master was the law demanding brick but denying straw listen to that a rigid master was the law demanding brick Meaning, demanding us to do, 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 but denying straw. That's how you make bricks. You have to make them with straw. A rigid master was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But then he goes on. But when the gospel tongue, it sings. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. The author is saying, the gospel doesn't just tell me what God commands. It gives me power to follow God. (laughs) There's no freaking better news in the universe. So Paul says, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Now he's saying, I have a new life to live now through the power of the Spirit. But then he does this amazing thing in verse 21. It's like before he wants us to spend too much time looking at his new life, before we do that, he's like, but wait, wait, wait. Don't take your eyes off the cross. Before, Before you or I take our eyes too quickly off the cross where we're justified with his blood, before we fix our gaze too quickly, even on Paul's newfound power, he calls us back to the wellspring of all that power. Verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For righteousness, if that right standing we talked about, that forgiveness, that just standing of not guilty and righteous in God's sight, if that were through the law, if that came by my obeying it, then Christ died for no purpose. And this is so important to understand. Paul is saying, yes, now the spirit of Christ lives in me. This is so important. Yes, The spirit of Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in Jesus. But where does the source of this power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus reside? Where does Paul receive the power to say, it's Christ who lives in me? He says, it resides in me, relying above all things on Christ crucified for me. So that through him alone, I am justified before a holy God. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. Paul's saying if I forget that, if I deny that, if I minimize that, if I try to add to the work of Jesus alone, if I start to think and live as if I could be declared righteous by my performance, even partially, instead of only through Jesus' death for me, then what was the point of his death? It's meaningless. Grace is is nothing. If if I could do this work myself, you know, if if you add anything to pure water, if you add anything to pure water, it's no longer pure water. It it doesn't matter if it's 1% impure or 99% impure. It's impure. If we add anything to what Christ has done, we nullify what Christ has done. God is holy, and He will not accept any compromise with sin. Jesus must be our righteousness, or we have no righteousness with God. If we add ourselves to the pure holy water of Jesus, it, if we bring our our righteousness into that that glass of pure water, it, it becomes impure. And, and again, I, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to say oh, you guys are so awful, and you know, I, it, it's not out of a, a desire to um, to slam people that Paul is saying this. It's because it's the truth about us, and we, we need to embrace the truth about us. And we need to embrace the truth about Jesus. And when we deny the wellspring of Christ alone for our justification, we we prevent the flow of the Spirit, That only springs from that well, that well of Christ alone for our justification. If, If you want to stop the water coming out of a hose, just turn off the spigot. If you want to kill the spirit's flow in you, take your eyes off Jesus alone for your righteousness before God and start relying on your devotional life, start relying on your tithing, start relying on your kindness, start relying on your honesty, start relying on your work ethic, start relying on your porn-free life, start relying on your own righteousness instead of relying only on God's gift of righteousness in Christ. And as short as death and taxes, you will start to impede and if not stop the flow of your, the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's exactly what the Galatians were doing. And I do the same thing. I I, I would never say, I'm adding to what Jesus did for my righteous standing before you, God. I I would never say that. But, But before I know it, these deeds like a devotional life or kindness to Jen that are supposed to come from a heart of gladness for the work of Jesus and independence on his spirit, they start to become where I put my security before God. I did my quiet time, Lord. I had my devotional morning, so you accept me right now. I mean, I just think it's right under the surface of my thinking. I work so hard at work today, Lord, so I'm safe with you now. Does that happen with you guys? And in more painful and sadder ways, it happens too. And this is more delicate because we have to be compassionate about this, especially when we feel and we see in others' pain. And sadness. But but we might also see symptoms of this kind of self-reliance of Jesus plus me when we're overwhelmed with anxiety and fear over sins that we've already confessed, over duties that we've left undone, that we've, we've already brought to God. We might start to see this when we're paralyzed with getting every single choice right and we cannot live in peace. And we all can battle with those things. And we need to be gracious and compassionate with one another about them. But they can be rooted in this, in this subtle way that we've started to shift our security away from what Jesus did for us and who he is for us and on to ourselves. But listen, in the Galatians case, there was no subtle shifting about it. They were aggressively going all in on Christ plus what we do. Christ plus my performance for salvation. And that was a false gospel. And so now out of love, Paul gets even more direct and bold with this church. And look at verse three of ch- look at verse one of chapter three, verse one of chapter three. He says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. If I could paraphrase here, he's like, You are being so foolish. You have no idea. How could you give up on the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone? It was clearly taught to you. I I publicly showed you. I preached these things to you in open air. It's it's like he's saying, it's like an evil witch has come over you and cast a spell on you. It's as bad as if you've been hypnotized. It is as bad as if you've been hypnotized by a, a, a dark cult leader. Barbara just joined us, and okay, there we go. You were presenting for a second, Barbara, but I'm so glad you're here. And then Paul says in verse 2, let let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let me ask you one thing, Paul says. Let me focus on one thing. When you embrace Jesus as alone as your righteousness before God, you saw what happened, Right? Your lives were changed. There were miracles of power. And and most amazingly, there were miracles of heart change. There were miracles of freedom from sin's bondage. The the presence of the Holy Spirit of Christ came into your lives in, in, in ways you could never deny. And Paul's asking them, how did that happen? How did that happen? Do you remember how it happened? Do you remember how it, bare, it bore fruit in you? You found that you had new power to love, new power to say no to sin, new power to say yes to kindness. How did it bear fruit in you? Did it, did it come from you believing what I told you about Jesus? Or did it come from you relying on your obedience to God in the law? Which did it come by? And, of course, the answer was clear for the Galatians. It had come when they believed the gospel of God's free grace. And so he says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? This is verse 3 now. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You started with the Holy Spirit. You you had no hope with God. You had no peace with God. The Spirit came and gave you power and peace. And and now you're moving back to, to you and you carrying your own cross for salvation? Did you experience so many things for nothing? He says in verse four, if indeed it was for nothing. And he asks the same question again in verse five, does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul is asking this church whose joy and love and peace were drying up and dying up. He's asking them a very basic question. He's saying, at what point did your lives change for Jesus? When, when did you see joy and power and change? Was it when you put your trust in Jesus or when you put your hope for your salvation in yourselves? And, and he's asking this because, folks, when when we come to Jesus, when we when we see and receive what he's done for us, the most powerful thing In the universe that can happen to a person happens the Holy Spirit of Jesus when you embrace the truth about Jesus as your Savior you 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 recognize that you yes you are a sinner yes this sin offends a holy God but you put your reliance on Jesus to forgive you and to save you completely from all of your sin past present and future when you do that the most powerful thing in the universe happens Jesus himself, the Holy Spirit, comes into your heart, and he makes you new, and he fills you with, your, with himself. And when that happens, your life must change. I'm not saying your life must change. I'm saying it just has to change. Like, it can't not change. Now, it will not change all at once. You will not be perfect. Uh, it, it, it may not look as dramatic as someone else's story of coming to Jesus, but you will change. You cannot have the Holy Spirit of God enter into your body and fuse himself with your spirit and be the same as before. And Paul's appealing to them to that experience. And he's saying, you started that way. Are are you now going to go a different way? In effect, he's trying to explain to them the truth that this power for change, this power to live new, it continues as we continue to rely on Jesus and not ourselves for our righteous standing before God, as we rely on Jesus and not ourselves for our full forgiveness and our justification and our standing before God as innocent, not guilty, blameless, even though in ourselves we're not those things, we rely on Jesus and say, yes, Lord, I accept the gift of Jesus for my forgiveness, and clean record forever before you. My righteous standing before you. And now we're going to move to verse 10. I just love what he does here in verse 10. Because Paul is going to shut the door hard on anyone trying to escape this truth thinking that they can kind of still find their way to God through their performance. He is going to slam the door on salvation by self-effort. Very hard, very hard. Verse 10. And again, he's doing this because he loves them and he wants to make sure no one tries to go out that door because when they go out that door, they're not leaving a, a, just a religious faith. They're leaving Jesus. So he's going to shut this door. In verse 10, he says, for all who rely On works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide. That means continue to do all things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's God's word. He's saying, if you want to rely on the law instead of Jesus, you're going to be cursed. Because cursed is everyone who does not continue to do all things that God commands. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Look at the word rely in verse 10. See where it says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. That word is so incredibly important. That word rely. It it is so incredibly important for, for helping us understand what Paul is trying to get across. Paul is not shocked and alarmed and calling them foolish and put witchcraft spelled for their circumcision. Listen again, Paul is not shocked and alarmed and calling them foolish for their circumcision. He is shocked that they are relying on it for their righteous standing before God. Again, Paul was circumcised. His fellow apostles were circumcised. He's not shocked and alarmed that they're obeying some religious ritual. He's shocked and alarmed that they are relying on it for their righteous standing before God. Later in the letter, Paul will say in chapters 5 and 6, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. He's saying you can't rely on religious rituals, and you can't rely on your lack of religious rituals to justify you before God. You must rely on Jesus' blood and his blood alone. And and I say this word rely is so crucial because God is not commanding you today to not have a devotional life. Like, I I know we could walk away from this very confused. Like, well, what does, if we're not justified before God by our works before God, by our obedience before God, then do we not obey? Do we not, do we not pray? No, no, no. He's not, God is not commanding you not to have a devotional life. He uses devotional lives. He wants you to have a devotional life. He is commanding you not to rely on it for your acceptance before him. So come to prayer night on Tuesdays at 7. Go to Samson Society and confess your sins and get to know other brothers on Wednesday nights. Uh, Come to our devotionals at noon. Have your own quiet study in the Bible. Go to Donna's Bible study. Evangelize and serve at Dorcas when we can come back together again. And yes, come every Sunday to church here. All these are tried and true pathways that God gives us grace through these things and feeds us and grows us unless, unless we are relying on them for our acceptance before God. And if we start to rely on them for our acceptance before God, they choke the flow of the spirit and they either puff you up or burn you out eventually, and probably some measure of both. And I have experienced that time and time again. I start having a great sense of my quiet times with the Lord. My devotional lives in the morning seem like they're going great, and I'm close to God. And next thing I know, if I skip a few, I just, it's like I'm trying to, like, stop smoking. Like, I get jitters. and (laughs) My quiet time has become my Savior, right? My Bible study and my, my fellowship time has become my salvation instead of Jesus. And then Paul goes on to say this. He says, seeking to earn God's acceptance through your performance can only end in God's curse. For God has sworn in his word. This is from Deuteronomy, Paul's quoting. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Folks, this feels above my pay grade. The, the, the gravity. And the weight of God's holiness in this scripture is so incredible. Uh, I, I feel like I need to take my shoes off. And, and I feel like I barely understand God's holiness. But I'm so glad I have Jesus to cover me as I, as I preach these things to you. But, but later on in chapter 5, Paul is saying, listen, do you want to add your obedience to Jesus' work for your salvation? Like rely on that, rely on that again. I'm not saying don't don't seek to obey God, but do you want to rely on that for your righteous standing before God? If you do, if you want to add circumcision or your quiet times, you better be ready to add everything else. He says in chapter five, "Mark my words, I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised with this attitude of relying on your law keeping." He says, Christ will be of no value to you. This is verse, this is chapter five, verse two. He says in verse three, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised with this attitude of relying on it, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Fallen from grace, that phrase is historically so misused. It almost means opposite of of what it really means. We use that, you know, like there's some scandal uh, with, uh, you know, some political leader. We say, oh, he fell from grace. He fell from grace. Uh, Somebody does some terrible sin. We say they've fallen from grace. That's not at all what it means. Falling from grace means (laughs) you might be the most religious person in the universe, but you're not relying on God's grace anymore. For you're standing before him. You're relying on your righteousness. You're relying on your moral character and your goodness. That's what Paul says falling from graces. Falling from God's gift of salvation. And he says if, if, if you want to obey part of the law and bring part of the law into this equation with you and God, you better be ready to be perfect. And of course, Paul knows you won't be perfect. You, We're all contaminated even those of us who know Jesus and have been saved, we're all contaminated with with, with, with remaining selfishness that, that will never be fully expo- expunged, done away with until our resurrection, when Jesus finishes the whole job of making us completely pure. That's something, it's a miracle God has to finish. And so we continue to struggle with sin, and God knows that, but, but, but if, if we're going to rely on ourselves, and say, God, here's my heart, judge me according to my heart, instead of Jesus, we're never going to stand before him righteous. And because God is holy, we will reap his curse for our sin. On earth, that curse will be fear and dread and and bondage to more sin, and then ultimately, when we die, it will be eternal separation from God, the God who is zealous to protect the glory of his holy love. From all selfishness and sin. And so Paul is pleading with them, don't buy this garbage of you, of Jesus plus you. Because he's saying that isn't what God wants for you. It's not what God wants for me. It's not what God wants for us. And so Paul lands this plane with the best news in the universe. He says, no. Starting in verse 13, Paul is saying, God has something so much better for you and me. He says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Jesus did this, verse 14, why did he do this? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus did all this. He became a curse for us so that we would receive his Holy Spirit. Jesus became your curse. He became your sin so that you could, you could receive his spirit. Dear ones, brothers and sisters, God will not curse you because God already became your curse. God will not judge you for your sin Because God already became your sin and was judged in your place when he took on all your sin as God the Son. And God in return for what his Son has done will give you what only Jesus deserves. A righteous standing before him and his very Holy Spirit living in you forever. So that not perfectly, not without continual struggle, but so that you can begin more and more to live for him and through him. So, dear ones, I I just want to appeal to my heart, to your heart, and ask God to help us just to believe this good news, whether for the first time or the 10,000th time, to believe the good news. See all of your sin on Jesus and no longer on you. All of it, past, present, future, nothing for you to add. See all of your curse from God falling on God the son out of his love for you and never on you lord make us see this that we might experience more fully maybe more fully than we ever have the presence of his holy spirit so let's go to communion and as we take communion let, let's let's if any of you need to just have a moment with the lord here to mentally I just encourage you, see your sin on Jesus. If you have anything to bring to God this morning that you know displeases Him, just see it on Jesus. Agree with God about it. Say, God, that isn't right. I know that's not right. And and ask Him to help you see it on Jesus and ask Him to give you power to walk away from it. I'm just going to give you a moment, and then we'll go to communion.